0: By nature are sharks aggressive.
1: No, they're not.
0: They're not. <laughs> so this is mushrooms growing out of a wasp. I
2: mean we're just we're exposed to literally thousands of synthetic chemicals just in
3: our everyday life. My family is normal. I just think oh every family is a three people.
4: So if we put hair inside bricks, it will be like insulating your home.
0: Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe, and welcome to Think Sustainability, a show where we look at practical solutions for a better planet.
5: Today. We've got built in us this innate desire, a yearning to be with nature. So, for us to bring nature to us, it can only be beneficial. Can you ever have
0: too many plants? You'll hear about the physical and psychological benefits of an indoor oasis. Where will you live when you're 65? Or perhaps you're retiring now and thinking about your options. Well, would you ever consider co housing? Cooperative living has come a long way since the hippie communes of the nineteen sixties, and it's a choice that's not only good for social well being, but could help the environment too. Shane Anderson has this story.
2: Imagine living in a share house when you're seventy. This is called co-housing, and it's a growing international trend where seniors take control of their own living arrangements.
1: Co-housing is really just a term to capture when there's a mix of private and shared spaces in a dwelling.
2: This is Chris Reedy, Professor of Sustainability Governance at the University of Technology, Sydney.
1: So you still have your own space. You've got your own self-contained bathroom, kitchen, but you've also got some shared spaces.
2: Co-housing and co-design have been buzzwords for a while as architects and developers try to make use of limited space in cities. But it's only just beginning to be thought of as a retirement option.
3: Everyone is economically independent, but people basically join together and they say, well, we have a shared set of
2: interests. This is Karen Curtis, founding member of the Agency Project. It's a group of people trying to bring co-housing to Australia. We want to live independently,
3: but we want to actually live in an intentional community. So we want to be kind of close to each other. We want to be able to support each other. We want to be able to choose what
2: things we have and don't have. Karen says that in Australia, our retirement habits are pretty entrenched. We live in private homes or we live in apartment buildings and flats.
3: The only other real alternative, retirement villages, always organised by the retirement village operator and they have a particular financial structure. Usually it involves this thing called a deferred management fee, which a lot of people don't like.
2: It's not hard to see why co-housing doesn't seem all that appealing on the surface. When you think of cooperative living, it's hard not to think of the days of university share houses with noisy flatmates, dirty dishes and hair in the sink plugs. Chris says the difference comes down to the design.
1: The old uni share houses, those houses weren't designed to be shared in the way that they were. And so you didn't have the privacy that you, you do in these new developments. With great design to encourage social interaction but not require it, they can be spaces that are very, have a very different feel to what hippie communes or uni-share houses have.
2: And when it comes to designing co-housing spaces, there's lots of options. But since most existing structures don't have the right mix of private and public areas, it's not quite as simple as just renovating your home.
1: Definitely easier to build and design design a co-housing development from scratch. One of the easier ways to do it is to take an existing suburban plot and maybe buy the one adjacent to it as well and then do a renovation that combines those two dwellings but might add a third one as well.
2: There's lots of different ways co-housing accommodation can look but its central feature is the divide between private spaces like bedrooms and bathrooms and public ones like shared kitchens and gardens. It's this that makes co-housing so appealing.
1: The people that actually live in these co-housing developments absolutely love them, and they don't feel like they're forced to interact and be part of a community. They get to choose when they come in and out of that community, and so they get the best of both worlds.
2: Co-housing is already a successful model overseas. The idea of it actually came from Denmark, but there are co-housing communities across Scandinavia, Germany and the United States. Chris says that seniors who choose to live in these communities are already feeling the benefits.
1: They feel like they're part of a community when they come home. They're not just coming home to their own family and shutting themselves away from the rest of the community, but they're coming home to a neighbourhood that they can engage with a range of different people from other generations and feel like they're still keeping themselves young by engaging with fresh ideas. They love that community feel that they can get So, still be living in the city and have all the benefits of that, but not have the sort of isolation that can come with living in the city.
2: And it's not just the sense of community. Many seniors don't feel like they have a choice over their circumstances, and that loss of control can have a negative impact on their physical and emotional well-being. But co-housing is a choice. And according to Karen, feeling like you have a choice makes a world of difference. Ultimately, the hardest
3: thing for people is that choices get taken away from you quite gradually and without you really noticing a lot of the time. Whereas once upon a time, you know, you had a car and if you wanted to go to the shops, you could just do it whenever you wanted when you don't have a car and you're relying on someone else, you actually don't have a choice. If you want to have a particular meal but you're no longer able to cook very well or, you, you know, you have arthritis and your fingers won't move, you know,
2: you lose choices. Co-housing offers that choice by allowing people to live independently.
3: The idea of moving somewhere where you can get out, do your own shopping take yourself to the doctor, if you can do all that because you're in a location where you say you've got a lift if you've got mobility problems, it makes a huge difference, absolutely massive difference. You can do it on, on your own.
2: While plenty of initiatives have sprung up in the past few years, co-housing hasn't really taken off in Australia. So if it's so good for our well-being and giving you a sense of agency and empowerment, why aren't more people doing it?
1: There's heaps of examples internationally and that's what really started our research project was saying, well, why hasn't it taken off here? What's, what's the difference about the Australian market? Really, what
2: was the difference?
1: Well, we went out and spoke to older people in our focus groups and some of the things that they said was Australians are different, that we, we like space, we like the, the quarter acre block, the idea of that. And, and in Europe, people are much more used to living in apartment style dwellings.
2: So the first issue is that there is an image problem. There's a lack of awareness out there about the different options for co-housing and the benefits of being able to design your shared living space. Karen says that another issue is that it doesn't make developers much money.
3: Usually it will be a developer or a retirement village operator acting as a developer who comes in and says, I'm going to build this environment and there'll be you know, 120 units and then there'll be a, a club room and there'll be a swimming pool and there'll be all these things. What we're looking at doing is actually having shared ownership
2: so that you cut out the developer. This is also compounded by the rising cost of land and housing affordability, especially in the city and near transport hubs. This means that the cost of purchasing land, even when it's shared among a few people, can still be out of reach of retirement savings. Chris says that the sheer cost of housing is giving for-profit developers the edge.
1: It is difficult to secure the land in Sydney when you're up against developers that are developing in the conventional way and looking to make the most profit out of that.
2: But while co-housing is slow to take off in Australia, initiatives like the Agency Project are hoping to create the scaffolding to build spaces where seniors can live the way they want to.
3: We're kind of feeling our way, and we hope that if we can kind of feel our way and and learn from some of the other experiences overseas and also around Australia with this exact same challenge, and not necessarily just for older people, there's lots of younger people and families and all sorts of age groups who can see the benefits of co housing.
0: Karen Curtis, founding member of the Agency Project, speaking to Shane Anderson.
3: What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures.
0: You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SCR. I'm Jake Morcombe. Now, on this show, we've looked at a number of ways that we can divert organic waste from going to landfill and utilise its properties more sustainably, whether that be recycling plastics, throwing your food scraps into your compost, or using wasted organics to remediate degraded land. But what about turning this waste into industrial sugars? Ken Richards is the CEO of Leaf Resources, who are focused on crafting sustainable industrial products from plant biomass. And Ken can explain that in a little more detail.
4: And if you think of Mother Nature, that's where oil started. Over millions of years, it's been compressed with pressure and temperature and turned into oil. But we have a process to take that plant material, that biomass today, Break it down to its component parts cheaply and effectively, and then get to what are called cellulosic sugars. So every piece of plant material has cellulose in it, and cellulose is the most common organic material on the planet. Every morning when you read your paper, paper is cellulose. You put your shirt on, cotton is cellulose. It's out there in huge abundance, but unlocking it from the plant is tricky. That's what we do. Cellulose is a multiple sugar molecule, two sugar molecules joined together. We can break that bond and we get to a sugar platform. Man's oldest industrial activity is fermentation, beer making, wine making, sugars with yeast into alcohol. Once we've made our sugars, we then use a fermentation process where various different bacteria, yeasts, take those through to other chemicals. From biomass, you can make virtually every petroleum-based chemical that is there. And when you think about those origins, it makes sense.
0: Where are you getting this plant biomass?
4: So we can use virtually any form of plant biomass. We've done testing at tonnes per day on hardwoods, so wood chip, or, or even better, waste wood, after it's been through a sawmill, etc. We've done it on agricultural waste so sugarcane after it's been processed empty fruit bunch from palm oil which literally lies on the side of the road and gets burnt to get rid of it rice husk after it's been through the rice mill we've actually got an MOU with a company in Europe where the wheat straw they've used to grow mushrooms in that's currently going to landfill we could utilize as a, as a source so we can virtually use any agricultural waste we like it that it's part of a process, so if someone else is paid to pick it up and bring it to a, a mill, and then we can have it already aggregated at the mill.
0: Right. So where are these mills? Are there multiple? Or... Uh,
4: we're pre-commercialisation, so we're, we have a number of options for potential sites, but Malaysia is where we're working our hardest. If you think about plant material, it grows fastest in equatorial regions. It's a great source, lots and lots of biomass, and it's just a very strong place to be. In many ways, we're waste scavengers, Hmm. waste recyclers. Our main process actually uses glycerol as the main reagent. What's glycerol? So glycerol is a benign chemical. It's biodegradable. It's a substance that, for a variety of reasons, and I won't get into the chemistry, helps the reaction, keeps the temperature and pressure down in breaking down this biomass, and allows us to do it economically to compete with petroleum. We've proven at independent places to get 25% more sugar than any other process in the world out of the biomass. Normally when you do something like that, there's a cost to it and it's your reagent. And glycerol is our reagent. But we actually get raw glycerol at a cheap price, we use it in our process, and when we recover it, we're recovering it at a higher purity and we can sell it for a profit. And we we recover 95% of it it's not consumed in the reaction, it aids, it abets, it does really good things in the reaction but it's not consumed. So what drives our economics is actually the glycerol delivering a better physical performance, 25% more sugars, but a better economical performance because we can recover as a good waste recycler does and sell it at a profit. The big bottleneck in replacing petroleum is that no one is producing cheap, clean, clean sugars. So we're We need to get into business and that will help expand this whole area. Everyone's waiting for someone to deliver the feedstock for the production of these renewable chemicals. The major chemical companies have stated goals of 25% of their chemicals to be renewable by 2025. They're probably not going to hit it because this bottleneck of taking plentiful biomass into useful cellulosic sugars hasn't been solved.
0: What's the alternative? Where are people getting these equivalent cellulosic sugars at the moment?
4: There's, there's other rival processes out there that can produce cellulosic sugars. They're more suitable for turning into biofuels and, and ethanol than higher price, better value chemicals. You can buy the sort of sugar we make, uh, it's called DE95 on a commodity standard. You can buy it. So there are other sources of it out there. But because biomass is such a cheap, input because glycerol is a cheap input. The big advantage in making it from biomass is the plants we've used have grown today, taken carbon from the atmosphere today. So there's a big carbon saving doing a biosuccinic acid.
0: Is cellulosic sugar, is it literally like a sugary grainy it thing? It is,
4: but it's not like the sucrose we get from the sugar mills, which is crystallized. So this sugar doesn't crystallize um, there's many sugars in the world, by the way, but this is an industrial sugar. And what does that look like? A liquid. Liquid.
0: Pretty clear liquid. Right. Is there a demand for clean supply chains when it comes to this regard? You're obviously, you've been working in this space for how long now? Uh,
4: we lodged our patents in uh, 2014. So right. we've been there for almost and a bit before that. So we've been there for four years. There's a massive demand, provided you go back to my caveats. You have to hit price points and performance. No one will pay a premium for all the lovely things we can deliver. You actually have to be economical. So we're at the forefront now. We literally will start saying we're going to have a plant at position X, most probably in Malaysia, and we're going to be in this game. There's really no one in the world at the moment looking to build the small-scale commercial plant, which is 100,000 bone-dry tonnes of biomass I say bone dry because biomass has moisture in it, and so it's about 50%. So that's 200,000 tonnes of, of raw biomass coming in. Oh, and
0: that, how often is that coming in, or is that how much can be situated at the plant that's, at that time? That's
4: a per annum figure. Right. So constantly through the year, that will be working. And that's a small commercial plant, but there's no one in the world looking to do this for chemicals. There are some plants a little bit bigger than that in the U.S. that have done corn stover through to ethanol. We can do biofuels. I don't like biofuels for one reason is they're worth probably five to six hundred dollars a ton. Most chemicals are over a thousand dollars a ton. So chemicals are a much more profitable game. Uh, and two, the market really is wanting the big chemical companies, the consumer goods want this supply chain from cellulosic sugars. So the demand is huge, potentially massive if we can get it right.
0: And how do you imagine getting to that point? What do you need to do to get there?
4: So we're very close. We've got a lot of um, negotiations happening now in Malaysia. We're very close. Malaysia, as I said earlier, has got a great amount of biomass that's our raw feedstock. It also has a very strong biodiesel industry, so the glycerol we need is there. And so our two raw ingredients are there. We have good relationships with the Malaysian government, talking about various ways they can help us get established. And so we're very close to looking at a plant in Malaysia which will start this whole game rolling along and producing an actual product.
0: Ken Richards, CEO of Leaf Resources. whether or not you're an adamant gardener or admirer of greenery, the physical and psychological benefits of indoor plants are crystal clear. Not only do they spruce up our living spaces, but their natural processes can improve air quality by sucking up crappy fumes that linger in our homes, which results in a cleaner living space and improved mental health. Peter Erger from the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney, is part of a research network looking at exactly how, and in particular indoor plants, are significantly improving air quality and where best they be utilised in the future. Peter spoke with Think Sustainability's Leot Samaglu.
5: Very interestingly, we started doing this work about 20 years ago but before us NASA actually came up with the concept they wanted to introduce plants into some of their space uh, ships and if we ever leave Earth we're going to have to try to incorporate plants in those uh, space modules and when they were trying to you know grow crops and increase oxygen in their spaceships they, they were met with varying levels of success but what they noticed was decreased levels of volatile organic compounds now these volatile organic compounds, tend to be carcinogenic endocrine disruptors. It's that new car smell you smell. People love that new car smell but it's actually very carcinogenic and it was being off-gassed by a lot of the materials within the spaceship and also the uh, glues that they use and you can understand. We've actually latched onto that concept and brought that into our indoor environments that we have here on Earth. A lot of the materials we have off-gas, a lot of these volatile organic compounds and we're noticing that buildings are becoming more sealed much like these space modules so we're seeing well we're creating these sealed systems and much like nasa back you know in the 1970s we may have an opportunity to introduce plants in these indoor environments as well What are some of
6: these carcinogenic materials that might be found around the home or in in an office?
5: Yeah, so we're looking at um, like fibre boards, those cheap plastic materials, benzene, toluene, ethylbenzene, xylene, they're the bad ones, we call them the BTECs, but also formaldehydes. Basically, if you can smell it and it smells like plastic, it's not doing you too well.
6: I remember I was living in an old terrace house about a year ago and I noticed There was mould on the walls, that sort of thing. What are some of those
5: sorts of pollutants in the air? Moulds are very bad for us in some scenarios because they can be allergenic, so we can breathe the spores in and we have an allergic reaction to them. If you have mold growing on the wall, get rid of it. As soon as if you see it, get rid of it. But prevention is better than the cure, so make sure you have a well-ventilated home. Make sure that if you have moisture problems, get a dehumidifier in there. Recently in winter in Sydney, for example, we are seeing some issues with molds. Now, back on uh, if plants can have an influence on that, I'm not entirely sure, There were some concerns if we put plants in the indoor environment that we could increase fungal spores because, you know, a lot of fungi are saprophytic, uh, which means they grow on decaying material, which could exist within the soil. Um, And that does not appear to be the case. We did a year-long study with plants in indoor environments. We compared the species with offices with plants, without plants. We didn't notice any increase in mold spores. The mold spores tend to get into the indoor environment through the outdoor environment. What kinds of plants
6: are beneficial
5: indoors? In terms of air quality, we've noticed any plant is beneficial for us. As long as they've got a healthy root system the bacteria and fungi that grow on those roots are actually the ones responsible for reducing the volatile organic compounds. It's not the plant whatsoever. A lot of people thought that the VOCs were absorbed into the plant tissues. Uh uh not the case. All plants kind of have a symbiotic relationship with organisms, microbes in the soil. The plants will secrete, you know, uh, sugars, And some of these microbes will utilise those sugars. However, in exchange, this uh, symbiotic relationship, they will provide the plant with some nutrients that the plant couldn't ordinarily obtain. Now, it's those same organisms, those same microbes on the roots that actually have the ability to degrade these volatile organic compounds.
6: What does this say about humans wanting to connect with nature more?
5: Well, look, we've had two and a half million years of evolution with plants we've co-evolved in jungles and forests and have had this intimate codependence on plants and all of a sudden in the last 200 years we've removed ourselves from those environments into these uh, highly dense urban environments where there's edges and i'm sitting right here in the studio and i don't see a single plant And as a consequence, we've got built in us this innate desire, a yearning to be with nature. The hypothesis is called biophilia. And if you consider when you go on holidays, you want to remove yourself from your environment. You want to go on vacation. You tend to go to a place A beach, for example, where there is nature, a forest, a bushwalk, where there is nature. And we constantly have that yearning. So for us to bring nature to us, it can only be beneficial.
6: Can you have too many indoor plants? Like, um, If you have a lot, do they become counteractive?
5: No, no. Because if (laughs) I wouldn't say counteractive. They may compete against each other, but that's only beneficial for us. No, more is better. Because the more plants you have, the less air pollutants you have, the better you'll feel. Um, And in fact, we're moving into um, working on green walls.
6: So you're talking about green interior walls?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Well... Exterior, interior, either way. Green walls, I think, are the way of the future. In urban environments, we're running out of space to introduce parks. And especially um, in the Australian property scene, we're seeing parklands getting torn up to put apartments. And uh, these more urban environments we have, it's, it's all these impervious, flat scenarios. So we're looking at green walls as a way of introducing greenery to environments that previously don't have greenery.
6: Tell me more about these green walls and what you're doing with them.
5: If we have them on the side of buildings or even indoors, if we have um, the air intake of a building, pull the air through a green wall, pre-filter the air going into a building, all of the air within that building would be purified. We have already a few buildings already in Sydney and Melbourne that have adopted the technology. We're also excited to introduce this technology to um, some infrastructure projects that people are concerned with air pollutants. For example, imagine this. A car tunnel, for example, a transit tunnel that's aligned with green walls either side of it. You know there's a lot of particles in there, a lot of gases flying through there, and we're pulling those air pollutants out as opposed to a exhaust stack where it's concentrated and moves into a neighbourhood. We can't have that. Peter
0: Erger, Research Assistant from the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney, speaking to Leah Samaglou. That's all we have time for today on the show. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe to Think Sustainability on your favourite podcast app or iTunes. Just search for Think Sustainability. Also check out our website, 2SER.com. This show is supported by the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. Catch you next time.